welcome to The Big Deal, where we unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and much more. Subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast player and don't forget to sign up to www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined again by AFL legend Warren Treadray. G'day, Treaders. Hey, Monty. Another massive week in sport and business. It's all happening, mate. And we've obviously got AFL finals coming up. How's it looking? Uh, how are you seeing it? Well, it's amazing, isn't it? You, you look at a couple of weeks ago, the, the top two were Collingwood and Port Adelaide, were probably playing the worst footy of the top four with Brisbane and Melbourne. But all of a sudden, it looks like uh, Collingwood will play Melbourne, who end up finishing fourth. Uh, that'll start on a Thursday week, that is. So uh, the first qualifying final. Uh, first elimination final, Carlton v Sydney the following night, which is a Friday night, the September 8th. Uh, at the MCG. Second elimination final, St Kilda GWS. GWS coming in some good form. That'll play on Saturday at 3.20 twilight game at the G. And then the final final, should I say, the second qualifying final is between Brisbane and Port Adelaide up at the Gabba at a night game. So as we know, there's, there's plenty going on. There's even some arguments and some some sooking up. It's amazing from Jonathan Brown, a Brisbane Lions legend, who feels sorry for Port Adelaide taking on his own team the Brisbane Lions, because they can't get home with the Brisbane Airport, Airport and Adelaide Airport curfews uh, after that uh, Saturday night game. I don't think it's really that big an issue. What I mean, tell me more about that. What What's his issue and, and why don't you think it's a big deal? Well, his issue is, you know, it goes back into many, many years ago when we played Brisbane and it was under a, a total different regime where there had to be one game at the MCG many moons ago and the Brisbane team going for four premierships in a row had to play an away home final, if that makes sense, at the MCG versus Geelong. He's effectively saying it's going to affect Port Adelaide's recovery because if you follow the ladder and Brisbane win, Port will then have to likely face a six-day turnaround because they won't get home until the Sunday. So for me, yeah, I get the sleeping in your own bed. That's a big thing. But with finals, anytime, anywhere, any place, um, and you can even draw it down to, hey, if Port Adelaide have no injuries um, and they recover fine, yet St Kilda have injuries, and they sleep in their own bed, they're still injured. So I just think it's a bit of a long bow. Um, the reality is the Adelaide Airport and the Brisbane Airports have curfews, so you can't get out after that game. There was a lot of talk about whether they put the Brisbane game to a twilight game, so effectively uh, flip the second elimination final between St Kilda and GWS to play that at night at the MCG, um, as opposed to Brisbane and Port Adelaide, which would go to the twilight game so they could get home. I don't think it's that big an issue, to be honest. Two nights away from home, when you're exhausted after a game, you can probably can't sleep. Your body's aching anyway. And what I found is you start watching you know, Premier League soccer because your mind's still racing. So I don't think it's a biggie. Some people do. Anytime, anywhere, any place, if you're going to win a premiership, you're going to have to go against the odds and, and do it away from home. And you know, we saw it many years ago with uh, Hawthorne. Everyone said they were gone. They had to go to Perth twice, and I think in three weeks, won both games and ended up, I think, winning their third premiership in a row. So if you're good enough, you'll get there. Yep, that's it. Now the Crows obviously don't have much to do uh, September, so they are looking forward uh, to the future. Already talk about uh, Matty Nix's contract and a potential extension. He's already got one uh, one to go. 
and what they're already talking to two years, Treaders. Yeah, this is a story around which really surprises me. Um, I don't think it's a great idea um, because if you've got one year to go and you look at this year, Adelaide really went a way above what they thought. Um, they finished 14th last year. They were up until about four, four weeks ago were red hot. Now, their record against the great, not the great teams, when I say the great teams, the top four teams, they, they pushed Melbourne to within a kick. They pushed Collingwood twice to within a kick. They've beaten Port Adelaide, who were top three, twice. Um, and they beat Brisbane home, uh, beat them away, uh, lost to them just away from home, but beat them at home. So their season fell apart off the back of losses to GWS, who were in poor form at the time, and Essendon. So for me, he's got one year left on a deal. If you don't play finals next year, I really is knocking down the door to playing finals. Crows fans will be livid. So then if you want another two years on top of that, so he's contracted for 2024. If you had 25 and 26, you're effectively starting your coach on a new three-year deal and you're expecting him to play finals and up. And that is quite possible. But from a due diligence point of view, and we'll get to West Coast soon, I think it's smart for the Adelaide Footy Club just to add one extra year. And if you can push his money up next year, improve his money and say, hey, you've done a great job taking us from effectively bottom to on the cusp of the finals and transition the list in terms of getting young Rochelle and all that and rejuvenating a Taylor Walker who is, uh, is close to winning the Coleman medal and falls just short, you go, hey, give him next year, give him the year after. You're going to have to be embedded by finals and that will take care of itself. He's not going to go anywhere. So, but to add two... We're seeing the situations where clubs get themselves caught in contracts. And Adelaide is not a, a um, recipient club very much from the AFL. So there's no six-month payout. If that doesn't work this time next year, and all hell breaks loose and Adelaide has a horrendous year with injuries at form, you're then caught with a two-year potential payout if you want to move your coach on. And the big question from Matthew Nix is, yes, he's transitioned to list, he's developed young talent. The big challenge he'll face now is, can he win them a premiership? And not many people can do that. And that is the challenge that he's going to have to prove and go on this journey with this list. But I don't think it's a three-year journey. For me, it's only a two-year journey. I think adding two years to a contract uh, to the end of 26 is way too much. Yeah, it seems like an unnecessary risk. And and I think as you touched on, there's the uh, West Coast example. Adam Simpson, where's he at, Traders? Well, as of last night, now this is Monday night, um, the West Coast board uh, announced unanimously to back him in um, and he has a two-year deal. There's reports too that Justin Langer, former Australian cricket coach and Channel 7 cricket commentator, he's been a board member at West Coast for quite some time, uh, staunchly backed him in. So let's face it, it's not about Adam Simpson's performance. Well, you could argue it partly is, but it's about their list management that's cost them. Because you, know, you look at the long-term deals they've done, like one of the guys who retired on the weekend was Nick Nat Newey. He's still retiring on a payout of a full pay next year. So their list management have gone long deals into blokes who haven't performed, and they were their star players at the time. So that was they've been bitten as bad as anyone I've seen in the long-term deals. Um, and, and the challenge for them is they could sack him out now, but sack him now, but it's probably worth $2.5 million to Adam Simpson. Right then, there's the replacement. Once you go over the AFL threshold of the footy department spend tax, um, so that's two dollars for every one dollar you got. So then you're going to have to replace him. And the word is that it's about four million dollars. What's going to cost the Eagles? Like the money looks bad, and the PR looks bad on it. But the reality of the situation is that they're a team that not so long ago had eighty million dollars in the bank. They had more money in the bank than the game did when COVID hit. So that says to you that money's not an issue. But something's happened in the last month. They've been belted by record rates, and we've spoken about it on this podcast 
for all seasons. Now, they lost, I think, 160 or 70 points to their arch-rival Fremantle within a month ago. But they fall over the line and play really well against the Western Bulldogs away from home. Then they get in three-quarter time last week against Adelaide. They're in the game. And then Adelaide kick effectively five goals to not much, win by 30 points. But something in the last two weeks has suggested, oh, no, he's okay now? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know who's who's showing the leadership of this club. What has changed where a board is unanimous to keep him? There must be other moves. We know Trevor Nisbet could be quite, could be gone as CEO. They've already nailed their fitness guy. But who's coming in? The, the fundamentally, I don't know if coaching's a problem. I'm not involved in it. But from the outside, they don't have the players. They haven't developed their list. They've gone all in, as I said, on the big names. And they haven't. You know, they've gone without first-round picks. When they get, give up effectively three first-round picks to get Tim Kelly over from Geelong, it's been poor management. That's the problem that's got it. Um, but, yeah, for a team that was rubber-stamped, that, and I got told from a confidential source a week ago that everyone's expecting West Coast to go it, West Coast speaking to the AFL about a payout. They're trying to work out how they nail Simpson. And then it's now about face. So what we're now going to situ- go through this situation next year as well because their form's not going to bounce back immediately. Yeah. They haven't got the players. They've got to go to the draft and they've got to go to cut real hard. So, sure, you know it's a, more, more or less the Adelaide Footy Club starting again. What it, what what had happened four years ago. So I'm just not convinced that the leaders are all on the same page and the board. They can say it's unanimous, but I guarantee you that board, if there's ten board members, it's probably a six to four vote to keep it. Yeah, and that's a worry for a footy club. Because the board members, you know, they, they swing on a whip. Yeah. Yeah, the, you're right. I mean, what has changed? Not much, uh, on the field at least, but it seems like that there's a bit going on behind the scenes that we don't know about. So we'll just have to wait and see and and see how that one plays out. And there's, there's plenty playing out already in terms of player uh, movements and rumours of trades already. Gosh, as soon as the minor round finishes up, the uh, the chat really increases uh, Brody Grundy has been the, the big talking point in terms of his tenure at Melbourne uh, where where do you see him heading Treaders? well I can tell you where I hope he heads um, but there are three teams let's face it this is a Brody Grundy deal that last year all the key players were in Port Adelaide was chasing him Sydney was sort of speaking around him but didn't have the room obviously with Buddy Franklin retiring that'll free up a bit of salary cap space the other one was Geelong were always mentioning that, and Melbourne were big. Melbourne ended up getting him five-year deal, had you know, originally signed the seven-year deal at Collingwood. They get him to go, hey, we can play ruck forward in tandem with the captain, Max Gorn. That hasn't worked. Played some really good footy in the middle part of the year when Gorn was out injured. All of a sudden, um, they're now saying, oh, well, he has to work his way back. He had 33 disposals, I think, kicked two goals and dominated in the VFL on the weekend. But he's not going to return because they need a forward. They don't need another Ruckman. And, and this is the bit that I can understand Melbourne going all in when they had Luke Jackson in the forward line, but it's a totally different player. Luke Jackson was a forward who could pinch hit in the Ruck, and he's done wonderfully well as a return home to Fremantle as their main man. But Brody Grundy was always a Ruckman first. He was a 90-minute Ruckman first. So he's a big bull who just keeps working. He, he grinds the opposition Ruckman, and he's an all-strain and a super player. But... The facts of the matter are, it hasn't worked at Melbourne. Melbourne know it hasn't worked. At the moment, Melbourne was picking up about 650000 of his, say, 900000 in salary. Collingwood fixing up the rest. There were five years left on a deal. The deal has been done. So whoever goes for him, and there's now three teams. Geelong are saying they're interested. I'm not sure how they can find him in the cap, but 
maybe they're going to shuffle some money and push some people back. They've done very well. And and Geelong historically keep their players to earn a little less so they can get more players in, hence why they won the flag last year with a very old list. But four years on a contract worth six fifty. Sydney have been talked about. But Port Adelaide's the big one I'm here in making moves. Um, and Porter even talking about, because last year Melbourne received a first-round pick. Uh, sorry, uh, Collingwood received a first-round pick from Melbourne. I'm hearing to help Melbourne relief with their salary cap, Port actually might pick up more than the 650. So that would suggest that Mel- they might actually pay Melbourne as part of this deal. So for, say, for example, Port pays the 650 to Grundy, Collingwood still pays their top-up money, and Port pays $100,000 to Melbourne for Grundy at, per year then effectively Melbourne's strain has been released. They get him off the books for six fifty. They effectively pocket seven fifty, And in return, Port don't have to part with a first-round pick. They'll part with a second-round pick for arguably one of the best ruckmen in the comp, albeit playing in the VFL. Port need a ruckman. Lysette um, has been in and out of the team with injury and form this year. They've got young Hayes and Vistini who are not quite ready. But for four years for Grundy, it would seem like a pretty good deal for a second-round pick. The challenge Port now faces is they've pretty much mortgaged the farm on Jason Horn Francis, and it's been a wonderful trade period uh, 12 months on because he's been stellar in turning around Port's midfield with Butters and Rosie. You know, he's a generational player. But they don't have any picks left, so they're going to have to create something. They're also into uh, Essen defender Brandon Zerk-Thatcher, and Asaba Radicalia from Geelong doesn't go away. So everyone says Geelong won a first-round pick. He's not worth that. But the reality is I suspect that Port Adelaide's probably the front-runner right now. Um, still lots to go, but Brody Grundy's effectively said via his management, which has been reported in the media, so journos are clearly talking to his management. He wants to be drafted as a ruckman, and he wants to be playing first ruck next year. I know nothing is guaranteed, but there'll be none of this, hey, I can work with Max Gorn, we can work together and play as forward. Yeah. Brody Grundy's been great resting forward. That's for his 25% game time. The rest of it, 70-plus percent, he's got to be first ruck. And Port is the team, top 14, finished third on the ladder, play Brisbane next week, and they desperately need a ruckman as of next year. So for me, it, it looks great. And he's a former South Australian. And the reason he, I don't think he entertained it last year is he bought a house in Melbourne. His wife had started a business in Melbourne. But I think 12 months on, he probably probably couldn't wait to get home to his uh, original home state of South Australia. So I'd watch this one. And if I look at the way Jason Cripps does business at Port, if he could pull off the Jason Horn Francis deal with look like 15 clubs and 4,000 draft picks last year, I think he'd get this one done pretty quickly as long as everyone's on the same page. Yeah, he's got a bit of work to do to, to make it happen in terms of draft picks and all of that. But if there's any list manager that can do it, I think he can. So... We'll certainly uh, watch this space closely. And uh, over at Windy Hill, uh, again, classic kind of uh, postseason fallout happening happening there with Essendon. The big one there is Darcy Parrish. Uh, doesn't seem like uh, there's much movement in terms of his deal. And it's starting to get a bit ugly, Treaders. Yeah, it's getting ugly because um, clearly someone's talking to journalists. You know, Tom Brown, who works uh, for SEN, formerly of Fox, said that the parish camp and his manager, Scott Lucas, have got a five-year offer. The money's not quite where it needs to be. They want a six-year offer. They want the TPP cap rise, which is the total player payments rise. So, for example, if our parish was on $700,000, Essendon have offered him, and the salary cap I'm hearing will go up by at least 10%, potentially 20% because of the new TV deal. If they have the TPP clause in there, say it's 10%, he goes to 770000 instantly for his either the first year, whenever the TPP clause rises, or the second year, and then it, it accrues from there. Um, Essendon aren't willing 
to offer that TPP clause and they only want to offer five years. You know, the management group and Darcy Parrish and Scott Lucas on behalf of him, his agent, have pretty much said that he wants six years. He wants and and hasn't really got further into the detail um, because he's actually accused uh, the club of letting the player down um, and because it's turned then into commentary around every former player and pundit goes, well, he's not worth six years. He's not Dustin Martin. He's not Clayton Oliver. He's not Petrarca. And you know what? His form isn't. But on his day, he's bloody important. He's probably equivalent uh, at Essendon. He also saw Merritt, the skipper, get, I think, a six-year deal. So he, he's going, well, I want similar. Um, and, and let's face it, Scott Lucas, gone are the days of actually uh, negotiations, sometimes can stay absolutely quiet and no one knows where people are meeting and deals are just announced. Where did that come from? You know, AKA Ross Lyon going to Fremantle many years ago. But on the other side of it, clearly people are talking and clearly someone out of Essendon is talking to the media. And, and that... That just strains relationships. It makes it hard for deals to get done. So yeah. he's pretty well let down. But I think also, too, the positive was that Brad Scott post-game talked about how important Darcy Parrish is to Essendon. And Scott Lucas highlighted that, that he's the one that he takes that information from. The rest is just sort of jostling. So I suspect he's not going to go anywhere else. Other clubs would be interested, make no mistake. But is he an out-and-out number one midfielder? He hasn't proven that yet in his career. Um, and, and everyone says, you know, some people have even talked about is he better off signing for three years, backing himself in and getting another three to get his six years, or does he want five straight up? Of course, the player wants six straight up, but the club might only at this stage only wants to five straight up. So it's going to get to a pointy end where either Essen and Buckle or Parrish says I'll fold, or Parrish says I want six and I'm out. It's going to be an interesting uh, next month or so. Indeed. Now, the AFL as well have finally announced their head of football. Treaders, what's happening there? Yeah, Laura Kane, who um, who worked for the Kangaroos in, in multiple roles, worked for the AFL more recently, has effectively got some, you know, to put it in the terminology, she's effectively the head of football executive. So she is the boss. She reports straight to the um, the new CEO and underneath her former Port Adelaide Premiership player, Melbourne and Essendon general manager of footy, Josh Marnie, comes in effectively running Brad Scott's old role at the AFL. So looking at the football operations, but uh, Laura Kane's head role will include AFLW, AFL, umpiring, tribunal, uh, judiciary stuff with that, uh, the whole lot. So she's effectively the the grand poobah of uh, AFL uh, area in sport. So um, I think it's a, it's a good appointment. I don't know where to too well but clearly she's been effectively doing this role uh this year while they're searching for another candidate and coincidentally the afl you got a giggle and i'm not saying she's not good for the role but we spent 18 months or 12 months searching for a uh and spending a million dollars searching for an afl ceo to replace gillan mclaughlin and uh all of a sudden they find the candidate sitting in the next room um, and the same situation here. We've got Laura Kane acting in the role of um, AFL head of football. And then all of a sudden, 12 months later, we appoint her in that role. So it's very AFL, very inside. And uh, I hope she does Classic. a great job because she's got a lot to look at. You know, if you just look at the umpiring situation at the moment, throwing the yeah. ball up, do we need a split, split season round before the finals? No, because everyone was resting players this week anyway. And, and it happens in every other sport. So if anything, I think the AFL need to grow up in that space and go, well, why do we stop our season for a week um, when it could just roll through? 
Um, so I think there's a lot for her to look at. She's obviously got to deal with all the concussion and head uh, head injury stuff. They work at tribunal, how that's inconsistent. The fixture, people are floating that even if you don't play a team twice, you only play them once, it should be ensured that you only play them the opposite next year. So if you're away from home this year, next year, uh, is at home. So they can try and get as transparent and fairer draw as possible. So she's got a lot to do. Um, massive, massive job. Now, Travis, before we finish up on the, on footy, wouldn't ask you about the issue of tanking. I mean, we've seen North Melbourne come through and uh, and win in the last round, effectively handing handing the number one pick back. How do you see that uh, in terms of your your you know your your responsibility in terms of playing your best and winning, but also the both the on field and off field impact of being able to potentially acquire a, a number one pick? How would you have played that in that sort of situation? Well, if I'm a player, I couldn't give a flying stuff because I'm out to win and I haven't won enough if I'm at North Melbourne or at West Coast a few weeks earlier. So I think the situation is the footy gods will take care of themselves. Everyone had a crack at the kangaroos for winning. Oh, no, what have you done? Or West Coast, you've taken it off and then North Melbourne have killed themselves out of the chance. The reality is I think there's only three um, number one draft picks have ever won a premiership. So it goes back. Luke Hodgie won four. Uh, Des Headland was another one. It's another player that escapes my mind. So number one isn't a guarantee. You know, you look at Nat Newey retiring. Jack Watts was the number one draft pick. He ended up playing two clubs and retired early. Nat Newey is a one-club player and an All-Australia club champion. So it, it doesn't mean that you're going to turn out being the greatest player of all time. There's holes all through all those situations. You know, Paddy McCartan, St Kilda, number one draft pick, you know, ends up hardly playing for St Kilda, multiple concussion injuries, goes off to play for Sydney in a grand final and now is retired from concussion injuries. It doesn't mean you're going to be a success. I think there's two angles. There's the playing angle and there's the management angle. Yes, they want the number one draft pick. Yes, there's extra sell about it. But look at North Melbourne. Now, they got the number one draft pick two years ago and they couldn't retain him, Jason Lord Francis. And that was for various reasons, the player and obviously the club. They hadn't had their ducks in a row. Now they're in a better position with Alastair Clarkson uh, holding the reins. But I just think, if anything, if you, if you let performance um, be dictated to by the outside noise, well, that tells you where your club's at. You've got to try and win as many games as possible. That gives fans hope. That gives players confidence. And when you win a game late in the season after a horrible year, it can springboard a preseason. That's always my thought. Worry about your on-field stuff and let the rest of the stuff be just talking. Yeah, good stuff. Now, uh, a draft of a different kind. We've seen the uh, Big Bash League kind of announce their list of nominees. Treaders, we've seen five, almost 500 players nominate for the BBL draft across yeah, this 29, is massive. 29 countries as well. Yeah, and also, too, I was speaking to an uh, international cricketer um, who's been involved in the BBO and other leagues and, and even these leagues over in Ireland. I think they play all the same ground, unbelievably. But um, the BBO needs to really catch up because the money they offer compared to other leagues, the IPL, we've seen one in the United States, Pakistan League, um, it's, you know, it falls well, well short. And, and when we say well short, it, it's still bloody good money for every person in their day and life. But in compared, compared to, you know, what's offered in England and others, it, it, it needs to catch up. And that's where... The, they've done really well, cutting the games back, putting more money around. Yeah, you know, we also talk about the WBBL. That's that's a hundred, almost hundred and twenty women have involved in that. And yeah, you know, Rashid Khan, who was one of the big names, superstar, plays for the Adelaide Strikers, has since its inception. Um, he effectively said that he was out and was going to reconsider his position this time last year because the Australian cricket team refused to travel to Afghanistan to uh, cancel the Afghanistan. Um, 
2020s and one dais. So he looks to have backflipped on that. And I, I think our league is great. Uh, as, as we say under the previous deal, they, they played an extra four games per uh, per team and it was ugly. It was too long. It was boring. Crowds dropped off. People weren't as interested. I thought last year it really started to kick back in again. They brought some big-name players in. Even, for example, the Adelaide Strikers get Chris Lynn in. He doesn't play the full year because he goes off to Pakistan League. But all of a sudden now we're, we're bringing, you know, when he goes for the Adelaide Strikers, it's the end of the Test Series and Alex Carey and Travis Head come back in. So all of a sudden you've always got those star names. You know, Rashid yeah. Khan was always left early. Um, you know, even the year that Adelaide won the title, he was wasn't in the in the grand final or the final team because of that. So I think the reality is that they've had to find a way to be more competitive, not only um, in their own league, but also in comparative leagues to say, okay, mm-hmm. who's the big names? Why are they going to come out and play the Australian six to eight week series? Why, why would they ignore others? You know, what I mean, so I think they need to realise where we sit. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as you ask the cricket fan in Australia, yep. We've got the big, big uh, we're the second of the IPL. Reality is we're not. So we need to find a way to to make it more attractive to come out to Australia for a six-week period to play cricket. And uh, and clearly post-COVID, that makes life a lot easier to do that. Yeah. Now, uh, in terms of big money, uh, we've, we've now seen that uh, the Matilda superstar, Sam Kerr, we've had a little glimpse at her numbers, Treaders, and uh, the Australian Financial Review has uh, published a few of her facts and figures. So um, we've been well aware of how big her brand has been, especially through the, uh, the Women's World Cup, but she's certainly got the uh, financials, it seems, to back that up. Yeah, the, and this is the bit that, you know, the Aussie soccer fan is only just becoming aware of how big she is in the world of sport, not just Australian yeah. sport. You know, we remember a, a young junior, I think, playing for Perth Glory going, oh, yeah, she's great. She plays this. And you think, well, I hope she makes 100000 a year and can live off it. Well, she clearly does. It's come out now she's at 3.34 million in the last year. Now that is mainly through her contract at Chelsea and the English Premier League. She plays in Europe over there as well as also endorsement deals with EA Sports and Nike. Now, Kerr's been with Nike for 13 years and it's believed that a deal is worth about a million dollars a year. That is massive money. Um, She also became the first female footballer to appear on the cover of EA Sports, the uh, FIFA video game. Don't worry, I used to be able to play that. Now there's too many buttons for an old man like me to do it. She's also partnered with MasterCard. Her Chelsea contract, and this is where it falls well short of some of the men because some of the ridiculous money on offer in the Premier League for the men are £200,000, £300,000 a week. She earns £600,000 per season. which is still bloody good money. Um, yeah. You know. It is. It's massive. She, um, yeah, and I remember back in the early days uh, working at Pickstar with with James Begley, who we've had on the show. I remember we were booking uh, Sammy Kerr for like appearances and she was getting paid literally a few hundred bucks. This was back yeah. in the day when she was just starting to blow up playing for Perth Glory and the Matildas. And we were saying at the time, like, man, this is, she's a steal. Uh, and sure enough, like, and honestly, it was only a matter of a couple of years before she just became really unattainable for the average brand. And she's now in that upper echelon, as you said, quite rightly, on a global scale. It's not just she's not just big at home; she's huge globally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you also look at three point three four million, right? Ellie Carpenter, who's the second best on the Matildas list, she's earning one point two million. Um, with her contract at Olympic Leonace. So um, that that's the 
it's a big gap. You know, it is. Emily Van Egmond is third. She's about just shy of 400000 Lydia Williams, Alona Kennedy in the 350000 So it's good money. Don't worry. But they do travel the world and they do spend their life effectively um, out of a suitcase. And if you look at some of the great um, uh, female basketballers of Australia, they'll, they'll play the WNBL season or in Europe and then they'll go off and play in the WNBA. So they're, they're three and six months contracts here to here and just keep travelling to Russia, to Europe, wherever. Yeah. Before you know it, they've had a 10-year career and played at 15 different teams and, and made a living that way. But yeah, the, there, um, there is still the the big gap between the men and the women, and you know I think that's all going to become off the back of revenue. But big big uh, companies like Nike keep pushing the Sam Kerr's of the world, then the reach and the resources will only get better. Yeah, and the disparity as well between women. I mean, that's what we've noticed. You know, in the in the marketing space, is you do see the best female athletes are getting paid huge money as much as the guys, but it's the gap. As we've seen yeah. here, even just within the Matildas, the gap between first and second and first and third in terms of earnings is huge. And, and what what I found as well with the brands is they're very hot and cold. So a bit of buzz is around an athlete. You know, I remember, um, you know, like in AFLW when that started to kind of really ramp up and became a big thing for brands to be part of, they were just tipping, the brands were tipping huge amounts of money into a couple of players there. And then, you know, it's kind of, the, the favor comes off it and then they just deploy that small amount of women's sports funds elsewhere, but it doesn't really spread through uh, equally or, or with any depth. So I think that's probably where we're going to see hopefully over the next few years that the, the pot of funds to, to grow more generally. So it becomes not just a few players who are earning the big bucks, but it starts to spread through. Yeah, and, and that's where I think even little things like there was some pushback against Nike in the uh, recent World Cup because Nike didn't make a Matilda's goalkeeper jersey so people could buy. Um, and then they've obviously released the goalkeeper jersey, but only for the US, the UK, France and Netherlands, the big teams. So the pressure continues, and now it seems like Nike will bow to the pressure, producing a generic goalkeeper jersey, but not uh, specific to Mackenzie Arnold, who was the the goalkeeper who dominated for for Australia. So I think all of that, you know, all of that will eventually come through. But you know, I still remember early days that you know you used to be able to get jersey, soccer jersey, but no one had names on the back. Yeah, you, know, you didn't have numbers on the back. So all of a sudden, you can get numbers on the back. I remember I was watching Arthur. Arsenal play many years ago and all they did was had three people on the ironing press at the old Highbury before they moved to Embers. And someone just had the number press, Burke, you know, Henri, Will Tort, whoever you wanted, Adams at the time, Seaman, you know, they just pumped them out. And that's where the point of difference was because you could only get that done at the club. Now you can get that done elsewhere. Now that you can actually buy it and get your name put on that number. Um, there's all sorts of stuff. And I think it becomes specific to the individual. But yeah, that's a little bit of an own goal by Nike in that one. But if you look at the global brands and go, well, where do we need to put our resources? Are we going to get ready for this World Cup? Who are we going to do? Who's going to go, well, yeah, Australia will keep an eye on that. They would never have probably expected the Australian goalkeeper to be as good as anyone in the world and people would want the jersey. But the, yeah. the facts of the matter are you need to provide a vast array of opportunities and, and products for anyone at any given time, and that's what makes the success or not. Imagine how many uh, Australian soccer jersey would have sold in the World Cup from yeah. people who either went to games or didn't even go to games, you know? sat at home and watched it on TV. I think that's the difference. Now, speaking of own goals, uh, we've been following the dramas around the uh, Spanish president. Like, how'd you be? You've just won the Women's World Cup and everyone's talking about the 
uh, president of Spain's Football Federation, Luis Rubiales, uh, just locking lips uh, with one of the players. What's the latest, Tredis? Because, uh, you know, there's things getting ugly, but this is as ugly as it gets, I reckon. Yeah, well, this is ugly because he's just deluded. Like, you think that that's appropriate? Yes, he's excited. Yes, he wants to make it all about him. What gives you the right just to start smooching a chick who doesn't even know you? Yeah, well, she probably knows you, but she's had her greatest. Yeah, and I feel sorry for um, for Jenny uh, Hermosa, who was, who was the player that received a kiss from him. He's like, hang on, this is the greatest moment of her sporting career, and this bloke decides to do this stupid and it just overshadows the whole event. Um, one, stupidity. Two, come on, mate, you should be in that position if you do that. Um, and the second bit, you know, the players have announced a boycott, and effectively saying it's poor behaviour. Absolutely it is. You know, he's not budging. He's saying I'm standing still. FIFA's now suspended him for 90 days. Criminal courts are now looking at investigating it. Um, all other leaders calling for his head. David De Gea, who the former Manchester United goalkeeper, has just joined uh, the Saudis and former Spanish number one, has pretty much said he's a disgrace. Like, it, it just it's just stupidity. And then how's the ego to think he could just, oh, no, no, I made a mistake. I'm going to stick firm. Well, he's, got one, he's got one friend though, Tredders. He's got one Who? friend. It's his mum. So oh. literally everyone's turned against him quite rightly, but his mum has gone on a hunger strike. She's locked herself in a church in Southern Spain and she's not going to eat until this matter's resolved. So uh, I think she might starve the poor love. Yeah. Well, he's been suspended for 90 days. You could probably get through 30 days, couldn't you, without eating? I hope she's got water because I do hear a bit about water fasting, so I'm not sure uh, maybe that's appropriate. But, gosh, what a mess. Now, the Europeans, the just... Europeans love their food. She's not going to last 24 hours, I reckon, that, before that she is wants true. some nice Spanish that's... tapas or but, something but, like that. Yeah, but as bad as the situation there is, there is some positivity. And we talk about the money into the females' world game. Um the money's starting to pour in for soccer. There's a newly formed Mercury 13, which represent one of the first multi-club soccer ownership entities. So all of a sudden, all the big money has started to come in for people to go, hey, now Mercury 13 have raised 100 million US dollars. Um, and this is raised from a European family, officers, pro soccer players, the whole lot. So they're, they're looking at getting some controlling stakes um, in some of the, the soccer franchises because they realise the, the the female soccer from a business point of view is overwhelmingly undervalued, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean, if that makes sense. It's ridiculously cheap. Um, and recently, Chicago Red Stars, yeah, they sold for $35.5 million. Um, Chicago Sky took the new investors at an $85 million valuation. So, yeah, all of a sudden, there's some opportunities. We, we, we recognise that with what's happening at Inter Milan, David Beckham. Everyone go. Why did he go to America? Well, he got a twenty-five, made a heap of money, but then he got an opportunity to buy a franchise for twenty-five million. All of a sudden, many years later, he started up into Miami, who were bottom of the league. Oh, they've convinced a bloke called Lionel Messi to come and join them. Well, look how much money they're making. So, I think this is great investment, and, and it's good to see that the women are getting some funds uh, headed their way. Yep, and you you mentioned into Miami uh, on the back of Messi mayhem. Uh, into Miami is expecting to hit US two hundred mil in revenue. And that's more than three times uh, what they expected to get, and that's that's pure messy, pure yeah. messy. All uh, they a lot of it's coming from ticket sales. The the and that's home and away, like just the people all over America just desperate to see him. Um, what's what I also found interesting is that apparently they're getting a lot of money from corporate partnerships because 
they were quite creative with their contracts. And apparently they had clauses in with their existing sponsors that they could increase the cost of the sponsorship if someone of Messi's caliber joined the club. So they didn't name Messi because they didn't know it was going to be him. But clearly they were they were eyeing off a, a really big name and they managed to factor that into their corporate contracts, which is really savvy. Yeah, really smart. And also too, Luke, let's be honest, the, the corporate partners who've signed onto that clearly know that they've got something and they're clearly, it's not like it's your local uh, coffee franchise based in, you know, in little old uh, Inter Miami that has two stores. It's, you know, it's big brands, you know, as we're talking about Adidas, we're talking about Apple getting involved. So it, it works on their case. And as we said here, um, we mentioned many weeks ago, a lot of the deal that he rejected from the Saudis was straight up money. This was a partnership. Now, this is around about a 50 million US deal plus uplift. Well, if we're saying into Miami is tripled revenue, then I suggest that that says to me that the, the cut that Messi's going to get is a, a, a fair portion of that tripling of revenue. And, and that's where it's going to be a smart deal. And let's face it, he's done this off the back off too. The only thing would have been better for into Miami is to have the new stadium finish. They're doing this off a temporary stadium. But they've been able to draw with David Beckham and his contacts all the big names. Kim Kardashian's down there, whether you think they're big names or not. You know, um, NBA players, LeBron James has rocked up. Um, every single person you can even think of uh, who have come down, whether it's an athlete or a superstar or Brad Pitt or whoever, have all come down to support to come and watch into Miami. They love Miami to visit. You know, we see that with the Miami Grand Prix, but now they've got a reason to come and watch one of the best soccer players in the world. And and people are using their, their social media reach and their data reach via that to promote this brand. And this brand is just dominating. Yep, not so good uh, over in the Premier League with Everton, though, Treaders. Where are they at with all of their woes at the moment? Well, this is off the back of a team who had to sack their coach last year. They avoided relegation, so that's a massive positive and they reckon that's about 100 million pounds a year to stay in that top flight but it hasn't worked out so well for Everton the Premier League and this is one of the originals I remember that growing up at Liverpool versus Everton the Merseyside derby it was the biggest game but they're, they're trying to build this new stadium potential US investment worth about 200 million dollars has fallen through as I said they avoided relegation the new stadium is under construction but costs have gone up more than 50 percent to well over a billion dollars Australian you know, without the enhanced revenue from the new facility, the club's expected, you know, losses are reaching over $750 million over the last five years. So they can't wait for that new stadium to happen. They need to avoid relegation for it to happen and then they can start to cash in. But it, it's a waiting game and it's a time game for them because they're looking everywhere else and all the other big teams are upgraded. Now, you look at what Chelsea are trying to do with theirs. They haven't. Tottenham's built a brand-new stadium. Arsenal's built a brand-new stadium. This is the last 15. Manchester United have increased theirs. Uh, or Liverpool are looking to do more. So, it, sadly, this is all a part of the, uh, you know, it's an arms race in the English Premier League. And it was saying Manchester United are potentially going to be bought out by um, some royal families from overseas. So it doesn't get any easier for the little old teams like Everton, who used to be a big, big team that probably haven't evolved or have spent in similar circumstances. So, yeah, and the other thing that makes it worse, Everton's also under investigation for potentially violating the Premier League spending rules. So spending above your means. Um, it's a tough gig, but they've got to find a way to hang in and perform well enough on the field so they stay there for next year and hopefully then get cashed in on uh, this new stadium so they can cash in and get more people in to, to, to turn their revenues around. Yeah, and as you say, it's particularly sad when when clubs go through this and they're such prominent sporting brands. So uh, yeah, I really hope they can turn it around and also hope that the, uh, the Aussie boomers can 
can turn things around at the at the FIBA World Cup, Treaders. I'm a little bit nervous. The the Aussies take on uh, Japan tonight, the hosts. So it's going to be a packed packed house. Uh, Aussies are meant to be much better, at least on paper. But you know they haven't been playing overly well. They they slipped to to Germany and a little bit concerned, just quietly. Yeah, well, you got Dirk Nowitzki sitting courtside for Germany. You worry he might come on and just hit some threes from downtown. But um, you know, Schroeder, who plays for the LA Lakers, I saw a bit of this game, um, and it was a pretty close finish at the end. But the reality is, if we uh, we can bundle out, if we bundle out of the tournament, if we lose to Japan, I don't think that's going to happen. I think we're far better than them. But it wasn't so long ago at the Olympics we we got the bronze medal. It was an amazing achievement, the highest the men have ever finished. Um, but the reality is it's pretty brutal, isn't it? Um, you know, all these teams do take this very, very serious, the World Championship, arguably more serious than the Olympics. So this is a situation where the Aussies need to put their heads down and deliver. Yeah, and we've seen already seen that uh, Latvia shocked the star-studded French team. So the, the French are done. They're out. Uh, South Sudan shocked China. So uh, that's a, that was another big upset. Uh, and a... And a, a an upset in the in the week prior as well for the players when they got a, a missile alarm on the phone, Stratus. What was going on there? Well, you, you talk about your prep. You got to eat well. You know, hydrate. Um, you know, get your good sleep. Doesn't help if you're um, involved uh, because at the end of the day you get an emergency warning on your phone at four a.m. because North Korea's launched a missile at you. Um, the missile pass. So go back to bed and recover and prepare for your game. It's, it's yeah, hardly ideal. But there's a lot of hardly ideal situations at the moment because the NRLW um, chat GPT has taken off with a story online where a journo in the sports industry, this is a real cringe effort really because uh, someone who's clearly used chat GPT to write a match report in the NRLW, but they left the prompts in there. So... You're an experienced sports journalist. You're required to rewrite the following article. You're required to be extremely detailed. You're required to utilise Australian English spelling. So that's what they actually told it to do. But when they published their article, it still left in all their commands. (laughs) This is a a worry for um, school teachers with kids who use chat GPT and then they also run a filter to remove the um, scanning so you can't yeah. say that you've used ChatBT on top of that. So you put it through two different um, AI systems. But, yeah, I, I did expect at some stage someone would try it. But I thought, as you said, that cheetahs never prosper. You're always going to cover your tracks, don't you? Yeah, we've got to be careful as well, mate, because um, I've been generating your your scripts via ChatGPT for, for the big deal for quite a few weeks now, and I'd hate for those to get found out. Um, yeah exactly yeah that's why you're, you're so polished so yeah exactly no it is one of those things mate the uh, chat gpt is taking over the world um it is it help it can help you be quite efficient but uh yeah if you're going to use it to to pretend to do something and be something you're not then uh, it's going to get pretty ugly for you so that made uh headline news all over the country if not the world actually so a little bit of uh, egg on your face if you were the one who unfortunately made the mistake of leaving your prompts in so better luck next time exactly i have heard of good stories where people have been threatened certain things and then they've sent back a so-called chat gpt legal letter said write me a legal letter denying this parking fine and they've got off so there there is some positives that do come with that but uh 
I would yeah. suspect that if you're a sports journalist and your job is to report on the game, don't rely on ChatGPT to deliver the polished product back to your boss in time. And if you do, make sure you clean up your mess. And if you do, make it look like you've worked for two hours and send it a little bit late on the deadline because if you send it through in 10 minutes, it's pretty bloody obvious you didn't write it. That's right. Well, that concludes our sports business wrap for the week. You can get all of the notes uh, when you subscribe for free at www.thebigdeal.au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Big Deal. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.